Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 118. We'll begin with a brief summary of Jeremiah chapters 44 through 47 and follow with some thoughts about confirmation bias. Yirmiyahu is in Egypt, having been spirited away after the assassination of Gedaliah ben Achikam and an attack on the Babylonian garrison in Mitzpeh. And he has some words for the Jewish community who've gotten too comfortable in Egypt and forgotten themselves and who they are. Who the hell do you think you are? I've talked about the Egyptian Jewish community before in episodes 113 and 114. There were Jews living in Egypt throughout the First Temple period, not in large numbers at the outset, but more like as refugees. If you recall, before Yeravim ben Nevat became the first king of the Northern Kingdom, he fled Shlomo's wrath to Egypt. But as organized communities go, the first only took root probably in the 7th or 6th century BCE. This according to the 3rd century BCE Egyptian Jewish writer Aristeus, who talked about three separate waves of settlement. But the most interesting item to note about Aristeus's account is the nuclei of Jewish communities in Egypt. The Jews that came to Egypt came to fight. They were soldiers who settled with their families in royal garrisons. Military men or not, they still had values. You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? Yeah, I think Lieutenant Weinberg actually will do that. Anyway, and you would think after all that's happened in Judah, after all the sinning and the divine punishment, that everyone would have learned the appropriate lesson. That is, you worship idols, and God smites you and destroys the temple, except, well... Don't you get it, you crustaceous cheapskate? The Jews of Egypt tell Yirmiyahu that his formula is wrong. All the bad things that happened to them are the result of not sacrificing enough to the Queen of Heaven. They need to pour more libations. The women even tell Yirmiyahu that their husbands knew what they were doing, which riles Yirmiyahu even more, and he tells the people that whatever happened to King Sidkiyahu will happen to the Pharaoh Khofra as well. Oh, damn! Chapter 45 stands out for three reasons. One, it's seemingly out of sequence chronologically, as it attributes its writing date to the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Two, it's really short. And three, it offers a rare personalized get-out-of-jail-free card to the long-suffering Baruch ben Neria, who has been Yirmiyahu's faithful scribe-slash-deliverer of bad news. If you recall, the hotheads who advocated flight to Egypt in the previous episode labeled Baruch ben Neria as a pro-Babylonian stooge. Which makes sense, since Baruch was the guy who delivered all of Yirmiyahu's surrender Dorothy scrolls to the king, his courtiers, and the people. But Baruch Meneria came from a noble Judean family. His brother Sraya was part of Tzidkiyahu's inner circle and accompanied him to Babylonian exile. He had serious cred, and yet, as I said, he suffered much because of his association with Yirmiyahu, which God kind of throws in his face. Quote, You say, woe is me, the Lord has added grief to my pain. I am worn out with groaning, and I have found no rest. Well, yeah, wouldn't you say, woe is me, if you suffered for being associated with a party-pooping prophet without any of the upside? But hey, even though there will be ruin and the world will burn all around you, quote, I will at least grant you your life in all the places where you may go. Thanks, Obama. And since we're talking about ruin and the world crashing down all around, chapter 46 has even more bad news. 
In fact, the next five chapters will deal exclusively with bad news, but for the Gentiles. But because of the order and the groupings of the nations, it's hard to pin down some kind of master logic to them. Suffice to say, there are some similarities in the first cluster, which end with a note of consolation, which is weird because why should the Gentiles get consolation? And there are some passing similarities between some of Yirmiyahu's prophecies here and those delivered by Yeshayahu and Ovadia. And anyway, leading off, Egypt. Yirmiyahu rehashes the crushing defeat of Pharaoh Necho at the hands of the Babylonians at Karkamish in 605 BCE and states unequivocally that Babylon will steamroll their way across the Middle East. It is divine will, and everyone, everyone should dispel themselves of any illusions that there will be a different outcome. Quote, go up to Gilead and get balm, fair maiden Egypt. In vain do you seek many remedies. There is no healing for you. As for the Jews, the faithful ones, well, it will be a hard slog, but God will make it right in the end. But since we're on the subject of torment and woe, Yirmiyahu moves on to his second target, the Philistines in Gaza, who fell to foreign conquest. Although it's not clear when this conquest happened and by whom, was it the hands of the Egyptians in 609 BCE, as reported by Herodotus, or along with Ashkelon that was taken by the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 604 BCE? Hmm. Either way, quote, Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon is destroyed. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourself? As I said, your meow is just getting started, but you'll have to come back next episode to see who he smacks down next. Or you could just, I don't know, read ahead. Here endeth the lesson. Back when uh, Tanakh cast episodes were in the single digits, I often had like two or sometimes three themes on the go. But then I kind of streamlined into exploring one idea, but for this episode I'd like to do a little callback to the earlier format because two ideas kind of called out to me from this episode's portion. First, the Egyptian Jewish community, the first real diaspora community. I want to consider how even in ancient times diaspora communities got crapped on by folks in the motherland. And the second idea relates to how the Egyptian Jews reacted to Yirmiyahu's stinging condemnation and the question, how do you know when the effect can be attributed to a specific cause? So, Yirmiyahu had some words for the Jews living in the land of Egypt, living in Migdol, Tachpanes, and Nof, and the land of Pethros. And he, as he lay into the Egyptian Jews for their faithlessness, I couldn't help but recall all those Israeli scolds who wag their fingers at diaspora Jews, and I'm not talking about the occasional offensive remark from some random ultra-Orthodox member of Knesset or some chief rabbi of some town somewhere in Israel. I'm also not talking about the occasional modern Orthodox nationalist Zionist type, especially those that uh, you know were former diaspora Jews themselves who made Aliyah, etc., etc. I'm thinking of actually one person, Aleph Bet Yehoshua, author, avowedly secular Israeli, and granted his comments have aged like a fine vinegar and the last effluvial burst, you know, came in 2012, but basically it was the same shtick he kind of vomited up in 2006. Here are some choice selections from his May 2006 remarks. And the thing is like he's invited by diaspora Jews to come to, you know, New York, you know, wherever, and then he delivers these remarks and basically kind of like bites the hand that feeds him, which... You know, that's fine. You know, you're, you should be entitled to do that. But let's look at the words on its merits. So here's what he said, quote, What I sought to explain to my American hosts in overtly blunt and harsh language, perhaps, is that for me, Jewish values are not located in a fancy spice box 
that is only opened to release its pleasing fragrance on Shabbat and holidays, but in the daily reality of dozens of problems through which Jewish values are shaped and defined, for better or worse. A religious Israeli Jew also deals with a depth and breadth of life issues that is incomparably larger and more substantial than those with which his religious counterpart in New York or Antwerp must contend. You know, I like that image of the diaspora Jew's Jewiness being tucked away in a fancy spice box. While Yoshua the Israeli lives his Jewness every minute of every day, apparently, even when he's standing in line at the post office or sitting in the waiting room at his doctor's office, Jew, 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 he's just oozing Jewness every second. And if you thought that perhaps he's making some dig at the more liberal Jews in North America, no, 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 no. He also fires shots at Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews who live in exile. Even them, the Fruma Yidden in Monsi or Lakewood or Otramon, you know, even when they're full-on davening or schlugging kaparas, they're less Jewy and Jew-infused than their Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox counterparts in the Holy Land. Even when their Israeli counterparts are waiting for the bus the Jewiness of Israel is all over. It's in the appropriate ad in the bus shelter. It's in the garbage can. Or on the ground next to the garbage can. It's in the air. It's in the bus exhaust. And it just gets all over you. About halfway through this extended brain fart, he says, quote, Am I denouncing their incomplete identity? I am neither denouncing nor praising. It's just a fact that requires no legitimating from me, just as my identity requires no legitimating from them. But since we see ourselves as belonging to one people, and since the two identities are interconnected and flow into one another, the relation between them must be well clarified. As long as it's clear to all of us that Israeli Jewish identity deals, for better or worse, with the full spectrum of the reality, and that the diaspora Jewry deals only with parts of it, then at least the difference between whole and part is acknowledged. I was going to, well, you know, you know I'm just going to leave Yoshua's disingenuous nugget just there for you to contemplate. You can like rewind and hear it again if you want. It's been about five years, so we're due for some more from this guy. But why people in North America keep asking him to come and pass wind on this topic is a mystery. The reaction from North American Jews and even some Israelis then, as in 2006, was rather uniform and swift. Shut the fuck up! And the thing is, what Aleph Bet Yoshua never discusses, perhaps intentionally, is what exactly is the Judaic significance of the Jewish state, hmm? Well, you know, Yirmiyahu has a ready answer to this question for the Jews of Egypt. Judea, the Jewish kingdom, fell precisely because they strayed from their Jewishness, the Judaic significance of the Jewish state. The Jewish Jews, of them all, were destroyed because they fell short of Jewish values, you know, mitzvot, commandments. I'm sure he would say the same about Aleph Bet Yoshua and his secular chums. Not to knock the secular, most of my Israeli family is secular. I'm more comfortable in Israel's secular milieu than its ultra-Orthodox one, although I could swim in that ocean if need be. But, and here's my second thought. The Egyptian Jews, they don't fire off strongly worded letters to the editor. They don't reach for their pitchforks and torches. They agree with Yirmiyahu. Well, partially. Yes, terrible things have happened. But they don't think those terrible things have happened for the reasons Yirmiyahu says they did. They think the world turned to poop, not because they turned away from God and near offered to the Queen of Heaven. They think they're heading to the bad place because they didn't worship the Queen of Heaven enough. Which leads me to my second thought or dilemma or conundrum. I wonder how it is that two people can have the same data at their fingertips and identify the same causes but come to completely opposite conclusions. 
or someone that, regardless of the data, remains committed to their original conclusion. And no matter what you say, you just cannot move them. You say, the Jews sinned. Then God sent the Babylonians to destroy Judea and the temple. Oh, come on! And they respond, I'm with you, I'm with you. I really, really am. But the destruction wasn't because of the lack of faith. It was more likely a combination of geopolitical factors, such as imperial expansion, seeking to fill a vacuum, as well as short-sighted diplomatic overtures and... It reminds me of that quote from Joseph Heller, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't after you. The thing is, for those wired that way, ze los soter et ze, this or that does not contradict that. And if your horizon is broad enough and far enough away, anything can shake down the way you think it will. So say it's 1989 and you're releasing a sequel to a blockbuster film that swept the box office in 1987, and in that film, you project ahead to October 21st, 2015, and declare that the Cubs will win the World Series. A declaration that was played for laughs in 1989, but you know, it might become reality in 2015. Okay, okay, it wasn't 2015, it happened in 2016. But that's kind of the point. There were enough people who saw prophecy fulfilled in Back to the Future 2. Or were satisfied that McFly and friends came close enough to being correct. What I'm trying to say is that if you roll the dice long enough and as many times, you'll get the desired outcome. In short, the answer to my question about how such a thing can happen, you know, with the Egyptian Jews, it's a simple one. It's confirmation bias. Confirmation bias will always carry the day. Confirmation bias is one of those little logical fallacies that pop up every so often. Lately, I guess, it's been popping up a lot. I talked about logical fallacies, those little mind traps that muddle thinking back in episode 95 when I focused on the ad hominem attack. That move when you attack the person instead of what they say. The eyes are open, the mouth moves, but Mr. Brain has long since departed, hasn't he, but here we have a textbook case of confirmation bias, a tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs or hypotheses. Confirmation bias is a variation of another common phenomenon, apophenia, which is the tendency to attribute meaning to perceived connections or patterns between seemingly unrelated things. So Yirmiyahu tells the Egyptian Jews that worshiping idols led to the destruction of Jerusalem. He's a prophet and not a political scientist, so he's going to connect the dots in a very particular way, even when the dots are ambiguous. Oh, and then there's the matter of God telling him directly how the dots are connected, so I'm sure that has, that factors in too. But the Egyptian Jews, they counter by saying that not worshiping idols led to the destruction of Jerusalem. They have their dots too, and well, they're worshiping the Queen of Heaven, so, you know, and she has such a cool name. What to do? What can you do when even after evidence for people's beliefs has been totally refuted, people fail to make appropriate revisions to those beliefs? Well, what that belief is might be the key. If you're a mouse and you believe that there is no cat nearby and there actually isn't, you live to squeak another day. But if you refuse to revise your belief, and you probably end up as lunch. Humans who function like that would not make it through puberty. That confirmation bias would work its way out of the gene pool. And yet, confirmation bias persists, so perhaps it has another function, and we see that function at play with Yirmiyahu and the Egyptian Jews. That function is what cognitive scientists Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber call hypersociability. That is, humans, more than any other species on Earth, cooperate with each other, which is a difficult task to initiate and even harder to sustain, because if you think about it, the more reasonable, logical move would be to freeload instead of cooperate. 
Let somebody else do the work. Let somebody else take the risk while you reap the benefit. So we've developed habits of mind to kind of lubricate the sociability, even if from a logical, reasonable perspective, they seem dumb or faulty. Confirmation bias is the quintessential example. Mercier and Sperber prefer to call it actually my side bias. They argue that humans are not randomly trusting. When someone else, perhaps an outsider from Judea, presents an argument, they're rather quick at spotting the weakness. The only argument they are not so good at picking apart is their own. This skill of puncturing other people's arguments is useful when you encounter someone who might be trying to convince you to take all the risk while they freeload back in the safety of the cave. But it's not exactly a useful tool when it comes to considering the consequences for alternative religious beliefs or any other hot-button political issue like capital punishment or access to abortion. So what's to be done? How can we overcome my side bias? How can believers in God get the Egyptian Jews to come around to Yirmiyahu's way of thinking? Or to regard vaccines as being good for kids? Or guns as being dangerous? Study after study and experience in the world has demonstrated that providing people with accurate information doesn't seem to help. They simply discount it. Maybe the problem is the approach. Maybe the problem is science. But the thing is that the scientific method is the perfect antidote to confirmation bias and my side bias. My results have to be reproducible in other laboratories by researchers who have no motive to confirm them. Yes, scientists quibble and argue over what seems to be like little niggling details, all the minutiae. But in the end, the methodology prevails. Appealing to emotions, using fear, or whichever hot-button trigger. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. That may work better, but these appeals or triggers do not promote sound science or decision-making based on facts just a need for more effective triggering. Yirmiyahu regularly deploys fear, horror, stinging rebukes, and condemnations, but that has its limits, as demonstrated by the Egyptian Jews. In the end, maybe nothing can be done. As Mercier and Sperber conclude, quote, this is, the, is one of many cases in which the environment changed too quickly for natural selection to catch up. Perhaps then, I guess, we'll all just have to wait. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 119 when we conclude the book of Jeremiah with chapters 48 through 52.